following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I you to turn now in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. I believe I win the award for the longest sermon title in this series as we take up a long portion of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, we'll notice tonight in this particular phrase of the Creed, there is a significant shift in grammar towards the present tense. After mentioning the ascension of Christ... The creed moves on to present Christ in the present. It's the only part of the Apostles' Creed that addresses what Jesus is doing now in what we call the present. Tonight, I want to explore two questions from our two texts. Why did Jesus leave? Why did he depart from earth? And secondly, what is Jesus doing now? as we anticipate and wait upon the glorious return of Christ and the judgment of all the world. Please follow as I read from Acts chapter 1, and then we will move over to to Romans chapter 8. But pick up here in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And if you would now turn over to Romans chapter 8, page 944 in your pew Bible, Romans chapter 8 in verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, 
we thank you for these helpful and most important insights into the ministry of Christ as we focus this week on his crucifixion, his death, and resurrection. We come tonight to uh, these important matters of the ascension and present reign of Christ. May you fill us with insight, how we might appropriate your grace from the things that your word would teach us tonight. And we ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this election year, many Americans are asking, what have you done for me lately? As we uh, anticipate going to the polls in November, people are asking, well, what is in it for me? President Barack Obama is in the hot seat as he relies upon his record of what he has done in recent years to warrant whether or not he is worth being re-elected. And as we well know, candidates from the opposing party are laboring to persuade voters why President Obama may not, be, may not deserve a second term, and meanwhile trying to convince their own party why they would be the best choice to represent them. Well, as politics would have it, candidates on both sides are doing little else these days than trying to persuade people to join their side on the basis of what they have done and by making pledges of what they might do in office. Well, as we approach this topic from the Apostles' Creed tonight, I think we can express much gratitude that we have a Savior who does not face a re-election challenge. There is no threat to Jesus' reign. We have in the Lord Jesus Christ a ruler who has an impeccable record of servanthood. We have in him the ultimate leader who has made the ultimate sacrifice for us, that which we have explored in recent weeks as we've study the Apostles' Creed, and that which we will reflect upon, I hope, as we move into this holy week anticipating Easter Sunday. Jesus has no need, I hope, to convince us that he is the rightful judge and ruler of the nations. But just as some people question, what does the President of the United States do from day to day There may be some who wonder, what is Jesus doing now? I believe this concise statement in our creed and the supporting scripture passages help us understand that Jesus not only ascended into glory, but sits at the Father's right hand as our advocate and remains available as our intercessor. The ascension, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, we know is the fulfillment of what Jesus had already told his disciples what would take place. Like any good leader, a good leader always follows through on doing what he says that he will do. Well, Jesus fits the bill. Go back to John 14 and we see that he was very, very clear in telling his disciples that he was going away. Now we can imagine the disciples feeling overwhelmed, perplexed, 
at the prospect of Jesus leaving them, feeling inadequate without his leadership. But Jesus promised them in John 14, he assured them that that the disciples and that all of those who would follow after them would do even greater works than he had done because he was going to the Father. And he also assured his disciples that he was not leaving them as orphans, but rather he would ask the Father to send a comforter, the Holy Spirit to empower them and to equip them to fulfill the mission that he had entrusted to them. Well, over the next 24 hours, Jesus would suffer under Pontius Pilate. He would be whipped and beaten. He would be crucified, dead, and buried. Three days later, he would rise from the dead, and he reappeared to his disciples on a number of different occasions. But now the time of his departure had finally come. Now we remember that Peter, James, and John had been privileged to witness the transfiguration of Jesus. But now all the disciples would see this glorious transformation. And we remember at the Mount of Transfiguration how Peter asked that question that was out of place, suggesting that he set up three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Well, we see something similar here in verse 6, where the disciples are preoccupied with matters of lesser significance. Now, we can understand where the disciples are coming from. These who have been downtrodden after Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, had had their hopes revived after the resurrection and the reappearance of Christ. In their minds, the time was ripe to overthrow Roman imperial rule. It was time to restore the monarchy on David's throne. Well, Roman rule would come to an end. And a new monarchy was being inaugurated, but not according to the thinking of the disciples or their fellow Israelites. Jesus gently seems to dismiss their line of thinking, and he offers them a mild rebuke, informing them that it was not theirs to know the time appointed by the Father for such things. But he takes this teaching moment to emphasize the most important thing. Jesus gives them a recommission. We all know the Great Commission from the end of Matthew 28. This is what we call the recommission informing them that they would receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, up in Samaria, into the very ends of the earth. You know, just as the disciples misunderstood the point of Jesus going away, his ascension and eventual heavenly session, We're reminded by Jesus' rebuke and recommissioning that the kingdom of God is not a matter of economics or politics. That regardless of our political or economic conditions, the kingdom of God advances. 
And the people of God are called to be witnesses where we live and where we travel and where we can be kingdom-extending agents through our own work or supporting the work of others. Regardless of political outcomes later this year, Jesus is on his throne. Regardless of America's prosperity or lack thereof, Jesus is on his throne. So having said everything that he wanted to say, Jesus ascended, literally into a cloud of glory. And as the disciples stand there in amazement, they receive two messengers, and we're pretty sure that these are angels sent by God who question the disciples. And it appears that God has sent these messengers to reorient the disciples. Having been too focused on things of earth by their question of Jesus restoring the kingdom, now they seem to be too fixated on things above, gazing at Jesus having just ascended. They're simply reminded that they have work to do and to be sent out on their mission. And gently reminded that they know the time will come to an end when Jesus returns in the same way that he ascended. That time has not come yet, which means we still have work to do. We are sent out on a mission as our ascended Savior sits at God's right hand. Overwhelmed by the invasion of the Japanese in the Philippines. In March 1942, Allied commander and U.S. General Douglas MacArthur was forced to evacuate his troops. And yet he promised the Philippine people of his eventual return to redeem them and set them free from captivity. It took two and a half years. But eventually, Douglas MacArthur did return with the reinforcements it took to not only invade, but liberate the Philippines from the Japanese, expelling the enemy from their land. Jesus did not evacuate in his departure from earth. He had secured ultimate victory by his suffering, death, and resurrection. And yet, there was still a lot of mopping up to do. There was still a lot of work left for his followers to carry out a mission that would be long and drawn out. Jesus did leave during wartime, in which the battle is still fierce, raging on, entrusting to his disciples a great mission. And Jesus commanding and directing from the Father's right-hand side, sending reinforcements in the person and power of the Holy Spirit so that you and I might be equipped and might have guidance and direction. You see, we have a Savior who not only sacrificed himself for us, he not only modeled for us how to carry out his Father's work. He also empowers us. He entrusts to us a great work. And I believe that the Savior loves it when his followers humbly rely upon him and trust that he is interceding 
for us and equipping us by his Holy Spirit to live in the power of prayer and the power of grace, to be his witnesses here and there and wherever the Lord would lead us. You know, nowadays we might take for granted that Jesus has left. He had not intended to stay during his first coming. He had accomplished his mission of living the perfect life, of laying down his life as a sacrifice to conquer sin and death. Over the course of his three-year itinerant ministry, he poured himself into 12 men through whom the gospel would be spread to the uttermost parts of the world, that the Son and the Father might be glorified. It might receive adopted sons and daughters, a mighty throng who would carry forth the name and witness of Jesus Christ and carry forth until that time comes when time and life will end as we know it. And we will enter into a new eternal age, an eternal state, a new heavens, and a new earth. Friends, Jesus reigns. He is secure on his throne, and he has commissioned us to be his witnesses until that great day of his glorious return. So how is the Savior helping us to fulfill that purpose now? from the Father's right hand. Well, as we shift to Romans chapter 8, we gain fresh insight into the present reign of Christ, that he sits at the Father's right hand as an advocate before the Father. An advocate is one who represents, who even defends or makes an appeal on behalf of somebody else. If you are selling or buying a home, you may have a realtor who is your advocate, one who will represent you, who will help negotiate contracts with other buyers and sellers through their realtors. Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is our advocate, and it's made clear in no place better than here in Romans 8. Romans 8, I call the the grandest chapter of the Bible. It's here that Paul explores the glories of our life in the Spirit, our adoption, our inheritance in Christ, and the future glory of the things to come. And it's introducing this final section that Paul begins with one of five questions. What then shall we say to these things? Well, they're truly breathtaking. We are almost left speechless before we can utter another breath and offer unending praise to our glorious God and Savior. Paul then asks another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. God is on our side. And if God is is for us, if he is on our side, who can possibly be opposed to us? Elisha's servant was overwhelmed and dismayed at the sight of the Syrian army surrounding the city of Dothan. And then Elisha the prophet prayed. And God opened the servant's eyes to see a mighty army of horses and chariots of fire 
ready to come to their aid. Jerusalem was surrounded by a great horde, the entire Assyrian army. Rather than quake in fear, Hezekiah took his petition to the temple and humbly prayed to the Lord Almighty, who responded and answered his prayer by driving away that great legion and struck them down in a terrific plague. The Philistines thought that they were invincible with Goliath on their side. David thought different. Like Caleb and Joshua, he was not intimidated by the enemies. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how does God demonstrate that he is truly for us? Well, Paul points out the obvious. He goes on to ask, did not the the very God, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. If God did not withhold his most precious gift, if God was willing to give up his one and only son, What else do you need to convince you that God is for you? That God is on your side? What more could God possibly give? And if he has given us his very best, how much more will he give us all things? And then Paul asks, who will bring any charge against God's elect? We know that the answer is Satan the one called the accuser in the Bible. Satan accused Job of only fearing God because God had put a hedge around him, had protected him and blessed him. And then in the vision of Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet sees Satan the accuser bringing charges against Joshua the high priest who stood before the Lord Almighty in rags, in dirty, filthy robes, and Satan bringing accusations and charges of condemnation. But rather than condemn Joshua the high priest, the Lord rebukes Satan, and he takes off those filthy rags of his high priest, and he places on him pure and spotless robes symbolizing the righteousness that God alone can provide for his people. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who stands with us in the tribunal of God. When you and I stand before a holy God, Satan the accuser brings charges against us, and he's right. You and I have many charges. You and I are guilty of many accounts of theft and deceit and pride and rebellion and unbelief. And the list goes on and on and on. And Satan is a very shrewd prosecuting attorney. He knows our record better than anybody. And he brings the charge and he brings the charge and he weighs us down and he convicts us in our guilt. 
But then Jesus, our defense attorney, comes. And he lays claim to us. And he tells our God and Father, who is our judge, that our punishment has already been made. That all of our sins, all of our crimes, all of our charges have already been covered and dismissed. It has all been paid and reconciled. And Jesus removes our filthy rags, and he lays upon us, he clothes us in pure robes of his own righteousness. This is what it means for Christ to be our advocate. He defends us. He appeals to the Father. He protects us from his wrath. And for every one of those charges that Satan brings to your conscience, that Satan would bring before the tribunal of God Almighty, Jesus says, I paid for that. I have covered that. This my son or daughter, is no longer condemned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Gone. Case closed. And we are secure forever in God's holy presence. We're also told from Romans 8, an important detail, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Why is it significant that Jesus is seated at God's right hand? Well, we know from the temple sacrificial system that the priests would go about their work making sacrifices day and night, week after week, month after month, new moon after new moon throughout the seasons. There were no chairs in the temple. There was no place to sit down because the work was never done. The work of sacrifice went on and on and on. Not until the great high priest came, who made one final sacrifice for sins, eliminating the need for any more sacrifice. And Jesus who has entered into the Holy of Holies, who has opened up a new and living way by his precious blood, Jesus is able to sit down because the work is finished. It is finished, he said, from the cross because it's done. There's no more work for you or I to do. There's no more atoning sacrifice to be made on our behalf. It's finished. And so he is seated at God's right hand. I heard one preacher tell it like this, that on Thanksgiving Day, that, uh, that the work of meal preparation is not finished until Mama sits down. And when she sits down, it means it's done, ready, and we feast. You know, there was one occasion, though, when Jesus did stand back up. If you remember from Acts chapter 7, in response to Stephen, the first martyr, who boldly defended the testimony of Jesus Christ, who boldly confronted the Pharisees and the religious authorities of their hypocrisy and unbelief. And just before he was stoned to death, he saw a vision in heaven. And Jesus was standing to honor his faithful servant. We have a Savior who is fully engaged, who observes, who cheers us, who welcomes us, 
and will stand to receive us. As amazing as that is, we have a Savior who is seated at God's right hand who will stand and welcome and embrace his faithful servants when we enter into his glorious presence. Though God the Father took Jesus away, though he removed him from this world, we are reminded from Romans 8 that God, who was willing to give us his very best, and if you struggle with doubt, if you question the love of God for you, as we enter into this whole week, remember that God did not spare his only son, but gave him up freely for you and I. How much more will he graciously give you and I all things? The father had already given the younger son a robe, his ring, shoes for his feet, and slaughtered the fattened calf. Rather than sulk over it, the older brother should have concluded, wow, if that's what my father had done for my younger brother, how much greater will he reward me? If I would just come and enter into the feast, what a glorious and wonderful reward can I expect from my father. And indeed, the father did say to his older son, everything I have is yours. We have a God and Father who pledges to give us all of the inheritance. Everything that Jesus has is yours and mine because of what he accomplished on our behalf. Well, we have not only an ascended Savior who is our advocate. We also learn from Romans 8 that he is also available to us as an intercessor. So what Jesus is doing now, we learn from verse 34, he is at God's right hand interceding for us. You ever wonder, what what does Jesus pray for? Well, you see in the Gospels many accounts of him praying throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus enjoyed a kind of unbroken communion with his Father until those minutes of abandonment on the cross, when all communion with the Father was cut off. And Jesus offered up the cry of dereliction, that cry that sinners will experience an eternal punishment. But now, restored to his Father, renewed in his Father presence, we learn that Jesus pleads for us, For the Father to spare us the judgment to come. For the Father to accept us through his righteousness. Pleading and interceding that we might be encouraged and equipped to carry on the great work that he has entrusted to us until his kingdom arrives in full. You see, Jesus is not a passive monarch ignoring his subject with little concern over their cries and cares. We have a sympathetic high priest who, according to Hebrews 7.25, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He lives to intercede for you and I. 
Some of you may have been blessed with somebody who prays for you regularly. A family member, a friend, or a mentor. We are told here that we each, we have a Savior who prays for us. Who intercedes for us. Who pleads on our behalf on an ongoing basis. And he is a Savior who is always available to us. He is not bound by limits of time. You see, Jesus had limits on earth. He got weary and needed rest. He had to go on retreats with his disciples and time away from the crowds. He could not meet every need around him in the flesh. But now he can because he is with the Father. He is at the Father's right hand and he is with us by the Holy Spirit who is not bound by space or time. You know, we live in an instantaneous age where we have instant access to everybody with cell phones and the internet. You know, people can know what their friends are doing with Facebook updates immediately. We can send text messages to people who aren't answering their phone so that they can read it and respond. The Skype webcam technology enables a soldier in Afghanistan to see his children halfway around the world. We missionaries in faraway places can enjoy conversing and seeing their loved ones back at home. Jesus is at the Father's right hand and is available for communication, fellowship, intimacy, and he is always available to us. He delights to hear from us. He delights to minister to us by his Holy Spirit. No concern is too trivial. No matter is too small for his attention as we seek his will according to his word. Yes, this is what Jesus is doing now. His suffering, his crucifixion, his death and burial have already taken place. He has already risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. He is now seated because the work is complete. But even now as he reigns, he is interceding for us until that great and glorious day of his return, when he will judge the quick and the dead. I saw weeks ago a precious online video of a soldier from Afghanistan returning home, and he and his wife had, had secretly arranged a, a surprise return. The children did not know that their father was returning. And apparently it was the day of one of the children's birthdays. And the family had gone to a park somewhere, and mom and the kids and other friends and family members had all gathered, and there was this large wrapped box. And the kids were completely perplexed. You know, is it a bicycle? Is it, is it some great gift? They, they couldn't even imagine what was inside that box. And with the encouragement of mom and family, these children began to unwrap this box and tear down the walls And there was their daddy. And your heart just melted as you watch these kids wrap and squeeze their daddy with a a force 
just this, impen- this, this force and hug that seemed to never end, of just weeping and rejoicing and loud wails of surprise and ecstasy and happiness at their father's return. You know, the longing of a child for a father who has gone away is the heart cry of the child of God who longs for Jesus, the one who has gone away from us, to prepare a place for us, who is now interceding for us, who has promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness and to fulfill his mission on earth. Jesus is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Even while he is at the Father's right hand to represent us, he is ready and eager to return at the Father's command. Friends, may we long for that glorious return. And as we await his mighty coming, may we labor faithfully with a certain knowledge that God is for us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And truly, he is with us to the very end of the age. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we exalt you. You who reign at the Father's right hand even now. You who are interceding for us, receiving our worship, encouraging us by your Holy Spirit. How good and precious it is to be your child. To be going about the work you have given us to do. And may you fill our hearts with the longing, the longing you have to be restored with us as we anticipate that great and awesome day of your return. Indeed, come Lord Jesus. Amen.